we'll pray and we'll get started, okay? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, that you are holy, thrice holy God, Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, blessed Trinity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And uh, Father, we're so grateful today that you have given us the health and you've given us the strength to gather as your people. And Father, I am just uh, reminded and I am amazed uh, that your word declares to us that where two and three are gathered, you are in our midst. And uh, Jesus, you said that, that you were in the midst of those that gather together in your name. And, and, um, and therefore, we are grateful uh, to our covenant God that he is in our midst and that one day, uh, Lord, we will be in your midst and you, the tabernacle of God will be with man and uh, we will dwell with you forever and ever. And we look forward to that glorious day. Lord, uh, strengthen us now, Lord, as we continue our pilgrimage through this world and as we make our way, Lord, uh, through a culture that is in desperate need for truth, in desperate need for reconciliation. We pray that you would magnify to us the priesthood of Christ that reconciles man to God. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, that is what we are looking at. Remember, we're looking at what is called the threefold office of Christ. And do you remember, I told you last week who it was that initiated the title, the threefold office. Do you remember what theologian that went back to? Calvin. 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 All right. Uh, That's right. He is the one who originated the idea. And ever since then, theologians have adopted it as a very good way to summarize what it is that Jesus Christ came to do to represent us as his, as, or basically to represent God to us as prophet, priest, and king over his people. So now we come to uh, the subject of the priesthood of Christ. So Christ as priest. Christ as priest. And we are going to see that Christ as priest uh, really magnifies several aspects of the ministry of Jesus. And then I thought maybe in order to start us off, before we even look at specifically Christ, why don't we turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and look generally at what Scripture says about priests, uh, specifically the high priest. Because Hebrews chapter 5 gives us a general description of his calling and of his duties. So right there in Hebrews 5, you have a description of what priests were called to be and do on behalf of God and on behalf of God's people. Let's read verses 1 through 4. Every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God. In order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as uh, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So Aaron, the brother of Moses, is set out here as the 
um, progenitor, we could say, of the priesthood. He begins, he launches the priesthood into action in the Old Testament. And there are several things that are said here. If you look at what the author of Hebrews is saying here, what are some of the things that you see here that the priest is doing? What are some of the functions that you see that the priest is doing in the text? What would you say? Chris? Okay, so he, he, he offers gifts and sacrifices. And uh, notice, notice that phrase there, things pertaining to God. Do you see that? You see that there? Uh, I just found that interesting uh, because I'm preaching through Hebrews, if you didn't know. And uh, <clears throat> that is exactly what is said of Christ. You remember early on in chapter 2, that's exactly what is said about Christ, that he was a merciful high priest, chapter 2, verse 17, in the things pertaining to God. And so that's where that language comes from. It's just he didn't pull it out of the air. He knows that he's setting that up in his conversation about the priesthood. So yes, he offers uh, uh, gifts and uh, uh, sacrifices for sin. So that's one thing that he does. What else does he do? What else does he do? That's right. He is appointed on behalf of men. Actually, have that down because uh, what the priesthood is, it's a divine vocation. A divine vocation. God is the one that appoints him. Verse 4, he is called by God. So this is a divine summons, right? A sense of calling. Um, this was kind of a favorite topic of mine. Uh, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago, I was thinking about the whole concept of vocation. So if somebody came up to you and said, what's your vocation? What would you say, Scott? You would immediately say that your vocation is equivalent to your career, right? right? Yeah. Um, but in the old times, if you would have asked a Puritan, right, let's say, if you would have asked John Calvin or somebody like that, if you would have asked him, what is your vocation? He would have understood what you're saying to mean something like, what has God called you to do? So it had in it the idea of divine calling. That's what vocation had. And how much more, if you just look it up in the, um, some of the dictionaries will even point that out, the origin of the word, and they go back to the Latin and everything, and they, they, they speak of uh, uh, some, a sense of calling, especially a divine vocation. So um, uh, here the priests, uh, more so than anybody, uh, had a divine calling, a calling from God. So that's right. They represent um, man, so they are mediators in a sense. They have a divine vocation. They have divine ministry, things pertaining to God, where they offer gifts and sacrifices. And so they are involved in leading up the worship of the people of God. Um, they are also called to intercede for God's people, according to chapter 7, verse 25, you remember. And they were also called to be a blessing to the people, a blessing uh, to the people, if you if you think in the Old Testament, if you have in your mind, oh, I don't know why, but when I think of an Old Testament priest, I think of a of a guy standing there, you know, with his robes and everything, his hands are stretched out. Do you have that imagery in your mind a little bit? Okay, <clears throat> well, hands stretched out, actually very biblical, 
because that is what the Levitical priests were to do. Aaron had to stand in front of the assembly and stretch out his hands over the people as a symbol that he was blessing them. So a benediction was to be pronounced over the people. And you find that like Leviticus 9 talks about that. But I want to focus in on now the, the priesthood of Jesus. And I want to focus in on three areas specifically. So the, the first area is the area of sacrifice. So we're talking about sacrifice. What else are we talking about? What is done during sacrifice? Atonement. So I'm thinking about the atoning work of Christ. So atonement is also made in sacrifice. And I mean, that's really uh, the high point of the priesthood of Jesus is that there is really a twofold aspect to this, right? That Jesus uh, makes atonement for us, and that shows us two things. Number one, it shows us, number one, our need of atonement. We covered this quite a bit when we talked about the atonement specifically. Our great need of atonement, our need to have our sins uh, expiated and propitiated and washed away and cleansed and uh, removed and all of that language. But it also shows us the inadequacy of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So you're still in Hebrews, right? Talking about the priesthood of Christ, we're going to be in Hebrews a lot because that's really where it brings it home. Hebrews chapter 9, if you would. Hebrews 9, going to verse 26. Somebody want to read that for us? Anyone? Uh, Chris, go ahead. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Yeah, that's right. Um, notice what is what is being said there. What it's basically implying is that if if Christ's sacrifice was not a sufficient sacrifice, a complete a complete sacrifice, then he would have had to enter into the Old Testament pattern of repeatedly sacrificing himself over and over. Uh, but and that is what they call a very strong contrast here. Uh, in this verse, but now, once at the consummation of the end of the ages, or the end of the ages, what an amazing way to talk about the time in which we live, right? That's the way the author thinks about the time that we live in right now. We are living in the consummation of the ages. Isn't that amazing? It means everything has fallen in upon us, <laughs> right? It means all God's promises are fulfilled, all of the types and shadows are complete, Right? Every purpose God had in redemptive history in Christ is now completed. And the only thing that remains is for the consummation itself to come. Uh, but the ages have come to this final stage, if you would. We're living in the end of the age. Just amazing. Um, he has manifested himself to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So once for all, once, one time, the one-time sacrifice of Christ. How about chapter 10? Makes it pretty explicit that the Old Testament was insufficient, or the, excuse me, the Old Covenant priesthood and the Old Covenant sacrifice, the sacrificial system, rather, was insufficient and cannot provide the atonement that we so desperately need. Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible 
for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Isn't that remarkable? So what was it doing? So what was God doing in having his old covenant people perform the ritual? It was a shadow. It was pointing forward. Anything else? Faith. Faith in what? Faith in, in um, what was to come. It was an act of faith. What they were believing in Christ. Okay. Yeah. It gave them some theology to believe in. Okay. That there would come someone who would, once and for all, perform this act. That's good. And I think it's beneficial for us, especially like, you know, I've been reading a lot about the atonement in Leviticus 16 where it talks about the Day of Atonement. I mean, without yeah. that, I think we would have a very shallow understanding of what the atonement is. But for us Christians today, we can look back <clears throat> at Leviticus 16 and see what the atonement did and see that imagery, and it just really fills in the depth of Christ's sacrifice. Excellent. Yes, sir. Um, Excellent. That's Hebrews good. 9.13. Yeah. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the vile persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? So it was of some benefit, right, to, okay. to, to the people. That's right. That's right. So we don't want to have this. We don't want to have one one extreme or another extreme of the Old Testament sacrifice. In other words, we want to understand that in the Old Testament, I think Trisha hit it right on the head that these old covenant sacrifices gave the people a symbol to believe in what the reality of it represented. So uh, when you took the animal and you went into the courts and you offered up a sacrifice for your sin, or the priest did it for you, or the, the high priest did it on behalf of the people, they had faith in what the symbol represented. And so, because we don't want to view the Old Testament people as devoid of true salvation, devoid of real atonement, right? They had real atonement, but it wasn't based on those animals. It was based on the faith that they put, that the, the animals symbolized. And um, as some theologians have said, when the, the, the atonement of Christ happened, it's almost as if it's being retroactively applied to the Old Covenant people. It's just amazing, Right? Just like Job saying that he had faith in his Redeemer. And he, he believed that, that, uh, that he would stand with his Redeemer on that day. And so they had, you know, he obviously had faith in the atoning work of Christ before he could even tell you that it was the atoning work of Christ. He believed in a redemption to come in a Redeemer. Um, so, but at the same time, we don't want to view the old covenant sacrifices as sufficient. Because here we're being told, you know, point blank, they are not sufficient. They, 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 we need a greater sacrifice, one that will take sin away uh, itself. The atonement itself will take the sin away. And that's exactly uh, what it is. That's exactly what it is. Let me read this to you. It says, all various elements and features of Old Testament sacrifice, whether pre- or post-Mosaic, the element of substitution, vicarious, uh, propitiation, Vicarious means substitution, okay? Uh, propitiation, expiation. What's the difference between propitiation and expiation? Propitiation means the removal of the wrath of God. Expiation means the removal of sin. Okay, the removal of guilt, removal of sin, 
right? One removes the wrath of God, one removes the sin of man, okay? Represented by the two goats that were symbolically brought before the people and the, the priest would lay his hand on the two goats and one would be slain and the other one would be sent out into the wilderness as a symbol that sin was removed. And then when one uh, of the goats was slain, it was a symbol that its blood was necessary to appease the wrath of God. So all of that built into the Old Testament and pointing us to Christ, right? It says that Christ was, that Christ suffered outside of the city, outside of the camp, right? He was that goat, that scapegoat that bore the sin of his people and was removed from the camp as a symbol of his accursedness, right? That's That he was rendered cursed for us. Just amazing. All the imagery, all the imagery. Um, but the Old Testament itself looked forward to this. Turn to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. There are many places in Scripture that talk about this, but Psalm 40 is a, an amazing uh, psalm because of what it is, what it is saying and uh, a striking difference. Psalm 40, verse 6 and 8 which, not surprisingly, is ultimately fulfilled and quoted concerning Christ. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. So this is the psalmist making his complaint to the Lord, his confession, if you would. He says, my ears you have opened. Just remember that part. That part. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. So what is the psalmist expressing here? What he is saying is that ultimately what God is looking for is not the mere ritual, the mere repetition of the sacrifice itself, right? Anybody can do that. How does that transfer over into our modern day context? How would you make the contemporary theological connection today without doing Violence to the text. <laughs> in other words, how does this apply to us, this principle? That God in the Old Testament wasn't just looking for a sacrifice, a ritual. It's kind of like people that, you know, they go to church just as a filling a duty, but not because they love the Lord or because it's, you know, they think that they're just fulfilling a duty good if like they can check it off their list. But that isn't what the Lord is seeking. Okay. Is there something, it, what do we call that? What can we call that? False worship. False worship? Hypocritical. Hypocritical? False convert. False convert? False <laughs> Marlene, you agree with that? <laughs> okay. Works righteousness. Works righteousness. So I think what we could call that is moralism, right? Moralism is the idea of doing religious and good things just for the sake of doing those things, but without any real religion, true conversion, genuine fellowship with God. All you have is the moralistic act. So we have to be very careful. Parents, you have the hardest job of all because you're trying not to raise a little Pharisee. Am I right? Right? Doing it for mommy and daddy's sake. 
right? But you want, above everything, you want your child one day to tell you, you know, uh, like the people of the, the Samaritan woman, like, like the, the woman by the well, like the, the, the village there that said, it is no longer because you say, right, that you have heard this or seen this. We have seen for ourselves and we believe that this is the Savior of the world. So you long for the day when your child will tell you, Mom, Dad, it is no longer because you are a Christian, but I have seen for myself that Jesus is the Lord, right? That's what we long. That's the opposite of moralism and a Pharisaic heart. That is genuine conversion. Uh, and that's what we want. And that's what, the, that's what the, uh, the psalmist is saying here. Notice that word, my ears you have opened. What? Did everybody catch that? It's just kind of thrown in the midst, right? Everything made sense until he said, my ears you have opened. <laughs> yes, sir. Because, uh, saying my understanding was enlightened open to, to God's huh? Yeah, there's a, there's actually a grammatical, uh, uh, there's a grammatical device that he's using there, a literary device, synecdoche. I think the way you pronounce it, synecdoche. Don't make me have to pull up dictionary.com to pronounce it, but it's basically speaking of the whole by focusing on the part, or speaking of the, of the part and referencing the whole, right? Uh, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear, right? That's a similar device. It's saying it's focusing on a part of our anatomy, the ear, and it refers to us listening. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, sir? I think, well, the ESV has a note. It says uh, in Hebrew, it's ears you have dug for me. Ears you have dug for me. It's a literal Hebrew. I think I've, I think I've read about that, and, and I think that the scholars say it's a hard, it's hard to translate because they think it was a, a euphemism yeah. or a idiom, Jewish idiom, idiom. Yep. a Hebrew idiom. So. Yeah, that's right, and it basically means that exactly that his 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 uh, mind had become attentive to what God really wanted. You know, if you, if you read the Gospels, uh, where Jesus says, you know, let him, he who has an ear, let him hear, they go back to this. And they say, this is where Jesus got it from. Yeah, Jesus is not walking around talking weird. <laughs> he who has an ear. Oh, <laughs> you've never heard that before. Yes, they have. Because they knew the Torah. They knew the law. They knew the Pentateuch. They understood these literary devices very, very easily. Um, to us, it sounds strange. If you go to the mall and someone says, anybody have an ear to hear? <laughs> right? We, would, we wouldn't really resonate with that, but the biblical people would. They would. The system of sacrifices and burnt offerings, peace offerings, and thank offerings were not what God ultimately sought uh, as if these were to be an end of itself. Another point that Calvin made in his theology is that if all we have is just the sacrifices and these things, if they do not point forward to Christ, then all we have, I think, the way he put it was vain sport. All you have is just a, a, a ritual, a, a repetitious rote activity that we do. That's why I think we have to guard our hearts, make sure that church doesn't become just a rote, repetitious you know, thing, right? We can, if we're not careful, despise the normative means of grace in our life. Scripture, preaching, reading the word, prayer, we think, where, 
you know, this is all we do every week. This is all we do. Uh, do not despise the normative pattern that God has ordained for our lives to grow us. The normal means of grace. Now, that's not to mean that we're not going to ever have a uh, mountain high moment, that we're not ever going to have, you know, moments where, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, charismatics would say that, you know, these uh, uh, fresh baptisms of the Spirit, you know, where, where you're filled with <laughs> extraordinary measures of grace and, you know, those types of things. You're not going to have a mountain high experience, you know. Um, men's retreats and retreats are kind of renowned for that, right? You come down from a men's retreat and you're all pumped up and you're all fueled up and then you go back to everyday life. You go back to work, nine to five, right? And you're like, man, what happened to the fire? Right? Well, it's still burning, brother. You just don't, you just, you just don't realize it, right? <laughs> it's still burning. The, the, the whole Christian life will not be a mountaintop experience. I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, think, look at where God sent Moses after he had his mountaintop experience. He was on the mountain with God face to face, and then what happened? He sent them back into Egypt, right? He sent them into the valley. He sent them into the wilderness with the people of God to be mocked and ridiculed and to suffer and to endure and, you know, all, all the, the, you, know you know the story. But uh, let's see here. So second thing, there's the atoning work of Christ, but there's also in the priesthood of Christ, there's also the activity of reconciliation. Right? Reconciliation. To be reconciled to God. That is what Christ does for us. He reconciles us to God and he reconciles us to one another. Very powerful when you think about what's going on right now with racism in our nation. Right? The racial tensions are out of control right now. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard, I think it was yesterday, today or yesterday, but an officer was killed in New York. Uh, to two officers, well, you, guys, you guys are way ahead of me. <clears throat> Did you hear about the one in Florida? I think it was today. Yeah, man, you guys are on top of it. You better be careful what I say. You guys are, you guys are on, the, on, the, on the breaking news here. Yeah, this gentleman uh, who killed these two officers says he was doing it for revenge for uh, Michael Brown and for Eric Gardner, you know. Uh, Jihad Watch, though. How many, I bet you guys don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> the story came out on Jihad Watch that this individual is actually a Muslim and that, uh, uh, that he may have had some jihadist tendencies as well. I mean, the guy's name was, uh, uh, what was it, Ishmael Abdullah Brinsley. That was his name. And on his Facebook post that uh, Jihad Watch actually captured a picture of his Facebook <clears throat> post um, prior to them taking it down. That uh, where he was caught quoting the Quran, strike terror into the hearts of the unbelievers, uh, and quoting Quranic passages of jihad. So, just um, we're living in pretty volatile times, are we not? But what does reconciliation do? It brings together God and man, and it brings together man and man. Ephesians chapter 2. Let's turn there for a second. Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, what is the answer to Ferguson? What is the answer to. You know, all of these police brutality, what's the answer to all this stuff? The gospel, <laughs> right? Change the heart, right? And you change the person. You change his outlook. I mean, John Piper uh, has, you know, uh, written books on racial reconciliation because he grew up himself a very racist person in the South. 
and uh, he, uh, he admits and he feels horrible that he grew up as a racist. And so he's written Bloodlines, that's a book about ra racial reconciliation. And he's actually made that a very big feature of his ministry to try to uh, reach out to people of different races and to try to you know, establish a diverse church. Now we can get into the merits of all of that, but, um, but this is what the gospel does. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse... Oh boy, where do you, where do you begin in Ephesians? <laughs> right? What verse do you pick? Right? You're gonna leave something out, right? Uh, verse eleven. Everybody there? Ephesians two eleven. Therefore, remember that formerly you, uh, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now another one of those strong sharp contrasts now in Christ Jesus you uh, who formerly were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ uh, this is the verse I based that uh, the song I wrote um, what's the song Chris you know the song there you go I knew you knew it uh, for he, <laughs> better than I do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For he himself is our peace. Now notice the plural. He himself is our peace. Uh, who made both groups? Uh, do you have that there? Both groups. Mm -hmm. Do you have a different translation? Both. Both. Made us both. Made us both. Both groups. That's the NASB. Into one. And broke down the barrier barrier of the dividing wall. Now, what is the dividing wall that he's talking? What is the barrier? Well, y yes, in a sense, in a sense, but the barrier that he is referring to here is no. The barrier that he's referring to here is Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. You must understand that for a Jew, here is Israel the covenant people of God, and as if these are walls around the city of Israel, right, the covenant people, and then the rest of humanity is out here, and as far as Israel is concerned, everything out here is profane, unholy. Uh, Gentiles are called dogs as a symbol of their uncleanness. Isn't that amazing? Even Revelation picks this up later. This is, this, follow me here. This is very fascinating. In Revelation, it picks this up later. It's the verse I use against my wife about, you know, pet, pets not being in heaven. But anyway, you know, it says in, in Revelation, what is it, 21? The dogs are outside. I have a question for you. Here, here's a question for you. Is Revelation, when it says the dogs are outside, is Revelation talking about Gentiles? Unbelievers. So, the word Gentile, right? The word Gentile has taken on a different meaning. The word Gentile no longer refers to other than Jew. But in a certain theological context, the word Gentile 
can now come to refer to unbeliever. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? What did Jesus say in Matthew 18? If a brother sins against you, you go to that brother. If you receive, if he, if he hears you, you've, you've won your brother. If he doesn't hear you, take another one with you. If he doesn't hear both of you, then take, then take it to the church. If he doesn't hear the church, right, then what did he say? Then he is to be, right, as a Gentile to you, <laughs> right? Um, he's to be treated as one that is outside of the covenant people. God is zealous for his people. He's zealous to protect his covenant people. And now, in the entity of the church, whoever is not in the church, I'm not talking about the local church as much as the universal church, right, Jonathan? <laughs> but, but that's kind of an inside joke, sorry. But, you know, uh, as long as you're not in the church of God, uh, then you are not uh, in a right standing with God, you are not in fellowship with God, you do not have access to God, uh, it is exactly what, what Ephesians says. You are in the world without God, without hope. Isn't that tremendous? So, yes, sir. I just want to point out, uh, just like Gentile took on a new meaning, over in Galatians, the Jew took on a new meaning also. Thank you. Very good point. And, uh, a really good verse for that is Romans uh, 2.29, right? A Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly. Circumcision of the heart, his praises come from God, not from man, right? So you're absolutely right. The word Jew and Gentile, the apostles took that language and just, you know, uh, uh, how do you say it? They filled it with new meaning, theological meaning now, you know? But, but, but let's back up to the historical detail here for a second, okay? Let's, let's back up to the historical detail for a second of what Paul is talking about here, okay? And that is that what the gospel accomplished is bringing together uh, the biggest uh, racial divide that the planet has ever seen, Jew and Gentile. This is the greatest, because this has spanned thousands of years of human history. And what Jesus did by tearing down that wall of division in the gospel and uniting all peoples to himself and he, is that he obliterated all of these different type of ethnic, cultural type of barriers. Yeah. Not, not that... Not that Race and ethnicity is no longer uh, uh, no longer exists. As far as I know, there are still white people and black people and brown people and yellow people, right? <coughs> but in terms of their inclusion and their status before God, um, everything has been changed. Yes, sir. So, would you say that it would be wrong today? For there to be churches that are exclusively of one ethnicity or one race in a culture where multiple ethnicities and races exist. For instance, the black church, the Hispanic church, the Korean church, or even just the white church that's clearly a white church. <laughs> I mean, just yeah, I remember 19 years old uh, becoming a Christian. And I had grown up 
in the gang lifestyle and, you know, thugs and, you know, hip hop and rap and all that stuff. And punk rock, if you can fit that together somehow. <laughs> <clears throat> but at, shortly after I got saved, a friend took me to a Hispanic church. And I went into this church and I walked in. I thought I walked into like a gang rally or something, you know, all these Hispanic, Mexican guys, let's not be politically correct here. All these Mexican guys are standing around, you know, with their, with their lokes on and their mad doggers and their, and their dickies and, you know, and, and still hanging on to that old nostalgia of, you know, that gangster life. And I thought, this is not, you know, this is not what I got saved for. I don't want to, I don't want to be this anymore. You know, I, I, God saved me out of that. Why do I still want to look like that and dress like that and talk like that and act like that? You know, um, it just didn't feel right to me, even back then as a young believer. But I guess the only reason I would say there should be ethnically divided churches, in my opinion, the only legitimate reason for that would be for a uh, uh, language barrier. Right. You know, other than that, I think the church, I think we, we, I think we lose a huge opportunity to, to show and to display to the world, this is what the gospel does. It brings all ethnicities together in one house. You know what I mean? But sadly, a lot of folks aren't practicing that. Now, our church is very diverse, and I praise God for that. I'm still praying for those Asians. Anybody, any Asian blood in here? Man, we need some Asians in here. Yes, ma'am. It could be practical matters like the area that you live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I like what you brought up with Galatians um, in uh, chapter 3, verse 27 and 28. So for all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Just like what we were talking about. Was... Beautiful. Right. Is there a chosen race in the Bible? Is there any races in the Bible? I mean, no, no, no. Is there, is there a chosen race in the Bible? Yes. Yeah. Those in Christ are... Yeah, um... Yeah, First Peter chapter two verse nine. First Peter chapter two verse nine. This is Peter talking to Christians and using old covenant language to talk to us. Amazing. It says you are a chosen race. <laughs> How is that not racist? You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So how is that not racism? Because God's race refers to all of God's elect people from all the nations and peoples and tribes on earth. We are the chosen race. You know what I mean? Um, have you ever fellowship with someone um, in, in, a, in a different country, in a different setting, and somebody that's completely out of your culture and your context? Have you ever 
Paul, uh, I mean, uh, Wally, you kind of look like Paul with the beard now. I don't know what Paul looked like. What, what was your context that you're talking about? On the trips to Honduras. Oh, yeah. You know, speak Spanish and have a different culture, but it's like you just feel like your brother as soon as you get there. Yeah. Instant fellowship? Yeah. Anybody else? I've experienced that here in the States. Completely different Christian backgrounds, but instant we come together in fellowship. It's like, wow, we are true brothers. Yeah, coolest thing ever. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Um, in the church I grew up, there was a Filipino family. They were they had grown up in the Philippines and were saved in the Philippines, and uh, then they were moved into the states, and you know they still had a very Filipino culture in their home, and we'd go over there to their house and. Amen. Yes. Amen. So, I mean, you see, you know, the power of the gospel to do this, to reconcile us to God, of course, and, uh, and also to man. But one more, one more aspect of Jesus' priesthood, and that is his, <clears throat> his intercession. Okay. His intercession. And for that, um, we can turn to, oh, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. That's a good place where we see that. Hebrews chapter 7. Beginning in verse 23, it says, The former priests, verse 23, <clears throat> on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Isn't that amazing? Well, the priest died. <laughs> you, need, you need to have a priesthood in a dispensation where your priest is going to continue to die. <laughs> so God established a priesthood for that reason as well. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save Forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's remarkable. Because I've asked the question, you know, when we think of the intercessory work of Christ, what do we think? Is Jesus in heaven, on his knees, you know, he's got a phone book out, the elect phone book, and he's going name by name, name by name, all day, all day, interceding? It has more to do with his office, Right? with his office, right? It's like saying the president, uh, how do I not mess up this analogy? It's like saying the president went to China and represented you. Well, he didn't get up there and say, I'm here on behalf of Felix Garcia and Lisa Beatty, and I'm here on behalf of Kristen Razor, right? He doesn't go person by person, but by virtue of his office as president, he cannot be otherwise than our representative. In the same way, by virtue of his priesthood, he cannot do otherwise than to stand as our intercessor, right? who pleads for us, prays for us. And, you know, in, in a sense, I mean, you could ask the question, does that mean that Jesus only prays in general for God's people? What about my individual and particular needs? Do you think Christ prays for that? 
Yeah. <laughs> I can't, it's kind of like no wrong answer here. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, of course, he's mindful of everything that happens to us, right? He is mindful of everything. That's why we can make our, our requests and our petitions known to him. You know, Christ is interceding for us, maybe in a general sense, yes, but we could also say because of his omniscience in a meticulous way as well. Yes, sir? It's like on that day when Jesus, before his departure, he told his disciples, the apostles, he says, I must go, and when I do, I will send a comforter to you. Mm. Mm-hmm. To handle all those needs and wants. The, the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry, right, yeah. to intercede for us. Yes, sir. Um, I really like the the song, the hymn, um, Before the Throne of God Above. Mm. And the very first verse starts off, I'll pull the lyrics here because I know I'd, I'd jack it up, but it says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Yeah, we can draw great comfort from that, you know, knowing that Christ is interceding for us. Um, but this also means that the priesthood of Christ has to do um, not only with what he did in his death or even in his life, right? But his intercessory work is part of his, if you would, his exaltation, right? Because... He is interceding for us after the resurrection, after the ascension, and after the exaltation, after his enthronement. Once he has taken his right, you know, his rightful place by the, you know, the throne of God, the right hand of the majesty on high, then there, because of his life, notice this, notice in Hebrews, he ever lives to make intercess, intercession for us. So on the basis of his post-resurrection glory. Jesus is interceding for us. And um, Romans chapter 8 makes this specific connection. Now you go to Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 34. But Romans chapter 8, we love Romans 8, right? Especially if you're a Calvinist because <laughs> not only does it talk about Calvinism, right? And, and, and it talks about predestination, election, he... He who foreknew, he also predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. But then it goes on to tell us that everything works for the good of those who are called according to God's purpose, right? Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But then it also goes into the fact that nothing, nothing, therefore, can come against us. And this is part of Jesus' priestly work. How many times have you connected that? How many times have you connected the idea All things work together for the good, right? How many times have you comforted yourself with that verse? Yes? No? Yeah? Okay. I have, right? Trish, we have. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's right, being conformed, amen, sanctification. But how many times when we read that verse do we think of Jesus, our priest, we typically don't make that connection. But that's exactly what it says in chapter in verse 34. Right? He says He says there, if I can find it, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather 
who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. You see that? Perfect. Tied everything together, right? It tied the whole idea of Christ, his atoning death, his resurrection, his exaltation to the right hand of God, which is quoting Psalm 110. You guys are going to know before you're done, I don't know about this class, but before long anyway, before Hebrews is done hopefully, that Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other psalm in the entire Psalter, the book of Psalms. But after his exaltation, it is he who intercedes for us. Amen. Any thoughts on that? Questions or comments? That's pretty amazing just to even contrast that with the beliefs of Islam and things like that. We don't have that perfect, perfect person interceding on your behalf. Yeah, that's right. Amen. You know, the Quran, it says that Allah prays. Who is he praying to? Right? <laughs> if there's only one person, who is he praying to? You set me off on a tangent. Show my way my, my mind works. That's right. Soliloquy, right? Let's pray and get going. We're getting late. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask that you would make us mindful and remind us, Lord, every time that we are downcast, every time that we think things are against us, Lord, to remember that we have a risen, exalted high priest who intercedes for us. And therefore, no weapon formed against us can triumph. And so, Father, we ask you to remind us of this, remind us of the work of your Son, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.